Hey, welcome everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Um, Tonight we're going to dig into chapter 9 of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But before we do that, I have... Uh, I have something very important that I want to talk to you about, and and forgive me, this is one, people ask me, do you get nervous preaching? Like, never, never, ever do I get nervous preaching. Here's what I don't like, though. I wouldn't know if nervous is the right word. I don't like talking about finances. I don't like talking about giving. It's one reason I have Gabe uh, always do the prayer on that, but I need to. As, as senior pastor of this church, I need to talk to you guys about something for just a minute. We know that the vast majority of churches, church plants, fail within the first two years. That's just a statistic. Now, that's the, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. We just signed our third-year lease just last week, so we are going forward. We are moving forward. We are continuing to progress in what God has called us to do, and I am 100% committed to the vision and the mission that God gave us when we started this church. Here's the thing, though. We are a small church, as you can tell, right? We don't have the reserves to weather some storms that come our way, storms in terms of a month that's just, for whatever reason, very, very light on the giving aspect, okay? August, uh, some parts of July and August was particularly lackluster in terms of giving to discover. So we have, uh, we have reserves, and we have what we need to survive by all means. We are fine with that, but here's the thing. We don't have the reserves that a bigger church, such as Jubilee Fellowship or any of those have, to where they can just say, okay, it was just a dip, let's just go. In order to continue fulfilling the vision and mission and what God has called us to do, and not just hold ground, I don't ever want to be a church that just holds ground. I want to continue to take ground, to be aggressive for the kingdom, be out in the community, be doing outreaches, be doing all those things. I don't ever want to get to a point where I say, we have to pull back and play it close to the vest for a while because of finances. So I want to challenge you. If you are, if you are a recurring giver to this church, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness, and I think it's all about your faithfulness in giving to this church. However, we know that only about 50% of the attenders to this church give to this church. Now, part of the idea of being part of a body is that the burden doesn't all fall on one or a few people, that we all share the burden of keeping this church going, of fulfilling this church mission. And so I want to challenge you, if you don't give at all. If you're one of those 50% or so that don't give it all to this church, I want to challenge you to find a way to help us fulfill our vision and mission at this church. There is no amount. There is no, that whole idea of 10% tithe, I do not ascribe to that. It's what God lays on your heart. If it's a dollar a week, then God bless you for a dollar a week. You are participating in the vision and mission that this church has, and that's important. Okay? I don't want to belabor that point, but I do want to let you know it matters. If we want to continue forging ahead, continue taking ground, your participation in this matters. Okay, So that's where we are. Uh, thank you again for your faithfulness. And as Pastor Gabe said, it's allowed us to do so many amazing things. 
I want to up that bar, and I want to do even more amazing things in our next year. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. Hey, so let's get into, let's get into uh, chapter 9. So we are talking about, if you haven't been coming for a while, <coughs> excuse me, we're going through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going chapter by chapter. The reason we're doing it is because the revelation of Jesus Christ is unique in all the Bible and that it's really the only one that specifically, explicitly in the text says you will be blessed if you read it, you'll be blessed if you hear it. And so I think what better way just to absolutely know for a fact that we're all going to be blessed. We're going chapter by chapter and we're going to read every single word. If you come here every week or if you catch our podcasts, you can podcast through the website or Google Play or iTunes. You can catch them all, and you will hear every last word of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ spoken here in this church. That is my heart, and that's a promise to you. You're not going to miss a thing. So as we get into it, my job, of course, is to, to take something, especially in terms of this book, that's really confusing. Let's be honest. It's confusing. It seems mysterious. It's very, very often mistaught, misquoted, misunderstood. There's so many misses that I think we need to focus in on what really is happening and teach what really is going on and how we can take a, a Bible, the, the Word of God given down, handed down to us by His Spirit, how we can take a book that in large part focuses directly on God's heart for His children. He is a loving God, and he has made a way through Jesus Christ and all that. And then we come down to the last chapter of the book, the big conclusion. And all of a sudden, God's mean, and he's judging us all, and he's sending us all to the pit. That does not fly with our understanding of who God is. And so that's my heart, is to clarify this. So last week, we're starting to go through these judgments Okay, we start out we start out with the seals. The scroll with seven seals and we're unwrapping this scroll and each scroll reveals a greater and a more intense judgment of God's people. There's no other way around how to phrase that. It's a, it's a judgment. And we see that now as we do this, then we start to get into the trumpets. The trumpets are even further escalation of God's judgments. In other words, God is turning up the heat on those who are left here on the earth. Those who weren't taken in the rapture, those who are still around, God's turning up the heat. And he's turning up the heat not because he wants to punish you, as we learned last week. God's wrath is twofold. God's wrath can be correcting, and God's wrath can be punishing. God's heart for 98% of this Bible is that he would correct you, okay? And correction sometimes isn't fun. Think a parent spanking their child. The parent doesn't like to do it. The child certainly doesn't like to get it, but it's necessary for correction. But there does come a point where it's no longer possible to simply nudge and try and correct. Now there has to be punishment. And that's what we find in the last portion of Revelation. So when you look at that, God's wrath can be for correction or for punishment. He still gives us every opportunity to decide for ourselves what that path is going to be. Are we going to accept correction? 
or are we going to hold on to the bitter end and ultimately there will be a price to pay? So how do you reconcile that with a good and loving God that at some point there will be punishment and it's not going to be fun and it's not going to be pretty? Let me help you with that idea. There is scripture that helps to kind of clarify that idea. So listen to this. I'll just read it to you. I'm not going to tell you where it comes from. I'm going to ask you to guess. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Who is he talking about here? Maybe Egypt, Moses, the Israelites, maybe. It seems that way. You hear the word plagues, right? Let's go on. We'll answer that here in a second. I'll give you a hint. It's the Apostle John who wrote those words. Okay? Now, that's all you get for now. We're going to go on. This week, Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole thing in its entirety right now, so just listen. Let the Spirit speak to you. Kind of soak in what's going on here. Soak in the feeling of what's happening here. And then we'll go back in and we'll, and we'll teach on it. All right, so the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 9. This is verses 1 through 21. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. They have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of all of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses of those who sat on them. 
The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceeded fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For in their tails they're like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. And the idol of gold and silver and brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. There's a lot going on there, right? Everybody recognize that last section? That's the first section that I read earlier. That is Revelation 20 through 23, uh, through 21, that is. That's how chapter 9 ends up. And it's a challenge. Those who did not repent of these things are those who are subject to this punishment. We have every opportunity to repent. Keep that in mind as we go through. And repentance is up to us, church. We have a say in how this goes. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Let's talk about this just a little bit. Some people think, again, remember, I've told you that the revelation of Jesus Christ is one that has been studied over and over again by scholars all throughout the world, always has been, probably always will be, and no two scholars agree on anything. I'm going to talk in a little bit about why I think that's important. But there are people who say that this angel, <coughs> excuse me, is, is specifically representative of a, of a high-ranking Christian minister, a high-ranking priest, somebody that maybe we would all recognize, okay? Um, and they're misleading and they fall. Some people believe that and they do have the scriptures that can back up their thoughts and the study and all that. However, I believe that it's another fallen angel by the name of Satan. The reason I think that is because when we see in other scriptures, we see stars falling, right? This star had fallen. Stars, remember, are typically representative of either, either high figures or of messengers or of angels. So this is an angel who had fallen to the earth, okay? What do we know about Satan? Satan was a fallen angel. He had fallen. I think this indicates that this is Satan we're talking about. And the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. John didn't see the fall. It had already fallen. Now this goes back. We start talking about this bottomless pit. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Going back to Isaiah 14, 15. I'll just read it to you. It says, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. The idea of this pit and being thrown down to this pit, which we would just call hell. The Jews called it Sheol. There were other terms for it. But it all comes back to this pit or the abyss. Luke chapter 8, verse 30, 31. Jesus asked him, what is your name? We've heard this scripture before probably. And he said, he said, legion. 
for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. That word abyss translates the same as pit. It's the same place that they're talking about. And then later on in, in the Revelation, we'll see chapter 20, verse 1, says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. This is the time where we see Satan thrown into the abyss and locked up for a thousand years. We'll see that in chapter 20 when we get there. The other thing that's key about that, you don't have to put it back up there, the key was given to him. It's important to understand that the things that happen, this isn't Satan running wild under his own power. This isn't God can't stop this. God gave him the key. This is divine providence that's allowing these things to happen. Again, one of those things that's very hard to to reconcile with a loving father God who's giving the keys to the pit to Satan. But we'll find out later it's the very pit that he gets locked up in himself. God is in control, always has been. Revelation chapter 9, verse 2. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. The smoke obscures the light, and it stings the eyes, causes you to not want to see it. What this is telling us prophetically is in those days, the smoke, smoke and light shows, as we like to say, right, in in slang, the smoke and light shows, the shows that are going on are going to blind us to what's really going on. And we're not going to see what's really happening. Revelation 9, 3 to 5. I'm just going to read this one to you. But listen what's going on here. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. That sounds pleasant, doesn't it? No. So again, this is another one of those verses that's widely, widely debated. Are these literal insects, these scorpions? I told you there's a lot of literal uh, things that are going on here, and there's a lot of imagery. And there's debate always whether it's one or the other. Many, many people will tell you these aren't literal insects, that this is something else going on here, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Are these literal insects? Let's look at some of the clues that are in here. First of all, when we talk about plagues, last week we talked about the plagues paralleling those plagues on Egypt, right? Locusts were one of those plagues that were falling upon Egypt. We see that. Here's another interesting thing, which in a casual reading you wouldn't know. Anybody know, want to know what the natural lifespan of a locust is? Five months. Natural lifespan of a locust is five months. So again, I believe that they are actual locusts, but we'll talk more about that again a little bit later. The important thing to know here, they are acting under orders. They're not just going out and blindly tearing things apart. They have, even though they are tormenting, and it's not nice, they are under orders. There are only certain things, they are parameters that they can operate within. The trees, the grass, those are symbolic of the marked believers. Some Some theologians will tell you that it indicates the older and the younger Christians. You're a mature Christian versus a a younger Christian. 
In any case, these locusts are acting against their nature. Their nature would be just to go out and just blindly take everything. But they're being told, here are the parameters that you can operate in. This is how we know we have a sovereign God who's all-powerful. Moving on, Revelation 9, 7 through 10. The appearance of the locusts, just picture this in your head, was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing for battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. There's that five months again. There's a lot of imagery going on right here. People will look at that scripture, and we're going to talk more in depth about that here in just a minute. Many people take what's going on here in Revelation, and they want to boil it down to who's our enemy going to be? Anybody ever seen it like that or heard it taught like that? People spend entire lifetimes trying to study and trying to parse out and figure out through the scriptures who is our enemy going to be in the end times. Many, many people come up and they say, well, it's going to be the Muslims. It's going to be a Christian versus Muslim war. Some people, it's the kingdom of the north versus the kingdom of the south. Well, who represents the north and the south? Some people think the Turkish uh, empire, the Ottoman Empire, is going to raise up again. There are all these different scenarios, all of them valid and can be studied out and proven for sure. I'm going to tell you in a second why I don't think it matters one bit. But first, people say, okay, these may be insects, they may be drones, they may be attack helicopters. Let me show you a picture. Let's look at the first one. This is what the locusts, if you put all those pieces together, this is probably what they look like. I don't know if you can see that very clearly with the crowns and the long hair and the stinging tails. That is wicked. See the size of the man down there in the middle just being toyed with and tormented. That is a horrific scene. And between you and me, I don't want any part of being there when that happens. But let's look at the next one. Let's look at this picture. Anybody recognize that? If you saw that in a prophetic vision 2,000 years ago and had no context for what a helicopter was, would you think that was a scorpion? With a stinging tail, thunderous sounds, breastplates like iron. You could easily look at that or any number of versions of attack helicopters and believe that's what it is. Okay, people see the rise of drones as just being another example of this is the way that's going. You can go ahead and take that down. But again, I believe that it's literal insects that they're talking about. It says they're not permitted to kill anyone, but only to torment. An attack helicopter is not going to torment anybody. They're there to destroy. So that's what I believe. Study tells you different things, but I go back to Exodus, which we parallel here. They were literal locusts, a sign of God's wrath and judgment on the earth. I don't know why that would change now. So let's go on, Revelation 9, 11. They have as a king over them the angel of the abyss, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, his name has the name Apollyon. 
Abaddon and Apollyon both mean the same exact thing. One in Hebrew, one in Greek. They translate as destroyer. Just strictly means destroyer. Now again, let's go back to the, the foreshadowing of the wars, the Christian versus Muslim wars that, are, that many, many people are bracing for. I think there are a lot of people who say that this ultimate battle that's coming up is literally going to be between Christians and Muslims. But when I study it out, you go back to Daniel 11, and remember Daniel is the Old Testament apocalyptic. It's the Old Testament version of the revelation that we're looking at now. It's been parsed by scholars over and over again to show that it's going to be between the king of the north and the king of the south. And if you go by that, the king of the north, they say, is going to be the Holy Roman Empire. It's going to be Rome or the Pope, right? That's what they're looking at. It's going to rise to a power that we've never seen before, and that's going to be one kingdom. The other one is the king of the south, represented by Persia, Islam, and Iran, really, ultimately, right? People have torn this all apart, but I want to take that, and I want to look at that even closer, First of all, let's talk about, if we do exegesis on this, exegesis, remember, is going back into a scripture and looking at the context that it was written in, what they knew at the time. Now, it's difficult because this is prophetic in a vision, but let's still, let's go back. Muhammad, okay, the father of Islam, Muhammad was not even born until 570 AD, okay, hundreds of years after this vision. The Muslims themselves didn't invade Jerusalem until like 635, 637 A.D., okay, at which point they invaded Jerusalem. The Crusades, the Christians versus the the Muslim Crusades, didn't happen until almost 1100 A.D. This is all more modern history than this. And then the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, didn't rise until about 1300 A.D., So those things don't line up to me. Now, what did exist at that time, what did exist at the time this was written was Chaldeans, uh, Assyrians, Babylonians, different empires like that that were around at the time of Christ, not Muslims. Now, people take that and say, okay, all these empires originated in this area called that, that they knew and we know today as Babylon, right? this area of Mesopotamia called Babylon. Muslims do trace their roots back to Babylon. In fact, Muhammad was born in the exact same town. Remember the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets? Remember that? He was born in the exact same town that the Samaritan woman was. And yet Jesus didn't say, oh, you're you're from that place that is cursed for all of eternity. So I'm not going to deal with you. In fact, there was no mention made of it. I don't think evil is tied to geography. And I also don't believe that we should spend so much time focusing on who our enemy is going to be. I want you to hear that. People that get wrapped up in this, trying to figure out, is it the Muslims? Is it the Turks? Is it going to be, is it going to be the Vatican? Who's our enemy going to be? Are we ever told at any point in Scripture, okay, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Now, figure out who the evil one is, and let's fight him. Never happens. 
Be vigilant, yes. Understand who your enemy is going to be, yes. But it is fruitless and pointless to spend time trying to parse down and figure out exactly which branch of the, of the Muslim faith is going to come after us. I believe that that's just the enemy trying to keep us pitted against one another, nation against nation. John 4.21, talking about when Jesus met that Samaritan woman, John 4.21 documents that. It says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Meaning where you are doesn't matter. The fact that you're from this region, the kingdom of the north, kingdom of the south, does not matter. We're all going to be going through it. Now hear me on this. You look at the religion of Islam. Islam claims Abraham as its patriarch. Islam talks about Jesus. Islam talks about the Antichrist. It talks about trumpets. It talks about resurrection of the dead. There are many, many parallels. I am not saying that Islam is a valid, valid religion. Islam is, is evil at its core. Okay? Evil is a twisting, is, a, is, a, is very much a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what I'm saying. So hear that. It is a false religion. But that being said, we are called to be compassionate and loving to everyone. And that is our mission. We are never, ever told, okay, figure this out. You go in here and study this enough and figure out who the enemy is, and then we'll all line up and we'll start fighting him. We are never told to do that. And that's what's important. But here is what I am saying. We talk about a concept called Babylon. We'll get to that shortly. Not tonight, but we'll get to that in later chapters. It talks about Babylon. Okay, Babylon was a region in Mesopotamia. Babylon was a kingdom. Babylon was very, very powerful. But Babylon no longer exists now. Take that back. There is a town of Babylon. It's just a small little insignificant town doesn't mean anything. It's not even really related to that, but it does have the name. So if you Google it, you'll find it. Babylon, the term of Babylon is synonymous with all pagans, unrepentant sinners, idolaters, okay? That's what Babylon is synonymous with. And when it talks about our final battle being against Babylon, that's what it's referring to. Not a place, not a geography, not a kingdom. It's a mindset. Babylon is a mindset. That's what I'm saying. Jesus' commandment never shifts from love your neighbor to figure out who the evil one is and go after him. It never does that. Let's move on. Revelation 9, 13 to 14. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. One thing, to immediately, oops, one thing to immediately see about that, release the four angels who are bound. These aren't good angels who are on God's side. Okay? These are fallen angels. These are, these are demons of Satan who have been bound. He's saying release them. This is another place where we get the river Euphrates, the Euphrates region where that all comes together. That's where we get this idea of Babylon, Right? So we do see that that is central to it, but it's not the geography again. So 
uh, Revelation 9.15, And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. I'm not going to go into this, but this is another scripture that people, that scholars will parse, especially numerologists are big onto this. They'll take the, the hour, the day, the month, the year, they'll take that literally and they'll try and figure out the timing of all this and they'll try and add it to. If it comes up, if you, if you do the math the way that they do it, and it can be supported by scripture, it comes to 391 years. But it's not a specific time. It's talking about a time such as this. And if you read it with that mindset, it makes sense. Who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year? For this time, they were released. Okay, so that's where that comes from. So, Revelation 9.16 says, The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. 200 million of these armies of the horsemen. That is a mind-blowing scene. If you can just even try and wrap your mind about what's going on. He goes into it a little bit more. Revelation 9.17, And this is how I saw the vision. This is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. Here's, we got a picture of kind of what this scene looks like. Yes, I think we do. That's what this scene looks like. The fire and the brimstone that comes out of the mouths of these lion-like creatures are going to kill multitudes of people. This is another scripture, another section of it that people use to point to uh, the Turkish Empire rising because these colors that he's talking about, this hyacinth um, uh, color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone and the heads like lions, these are symbolic things of the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire. So again, it's another tool that, that scholars use to draw parallels to this happening. Bottom line, though, these horsemen kill another one-third of all the humans left on earth. Another one-third of all the humans left on earth. So let me ask you this question. Kind of take a little pause here because that is heavy. That is some heavy, horrible stuff to think about how that's going to work. But let's pause for a second, and I just want to ask you a question. If you are on the earth and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ... You are an open sinner and you're unrepentant. You're one of those who haven't been marked yet. And all this stuff is coming your way. Why would you not repent after seeing all this? Anybody have any good reason why you're sitting here on earth and all this stuff is going on? One third and one fourth of people are dying in these hideous, horrible ways and you have the opportunity to repent. Why would you not? You ever thought of that? Remember here, in our minds, when it says a third of man was, was killed off and things like this, in our mind, we're kind of picturing us. It's hard to have a global view, but remember this mankind that is dying off and is going through these horrible tribulations was made up of Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs and 
every other religion, including atheists. All those people are the people that are being, that are being tormented here. Now, let's do the math on this. This is today's numbers, just round figures, okay? Round figures. On the earth today, roughly 7.7 billion people, roughly. If we do the math as we're given in here, or actually, I'm sorry, going just to, to do the, uh, the numbers of people who are here on earth, 2.3 billion of those are Christians and Jews of this 7.7. 1.8 billion are Muslims. Uh, 1.08 billion are Hindus. 488 million are Buddhists. 750 million are atheists. And there's a couple million who just consider themselves other. They're other things. Okay. So if we look at all this, who's going to be left on earth at this point? At this point in the unfolding of the revelation of Jesus Christ, when we come to this crossroads, who's left? Okay, in Revelation 6, we see that a quarter of all mankind perish, right? That brings us down to 5.7 billion left at today's numbers. In Revelation 9, that we see another one-third die. Okay, that brings us down to 3.8 billion, give or take. So who are these people? It seems obvious, but I do have a point to this. When it comes to the unfolding of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the trials, the tribulations, the, the, the things, these horrible things that are going on, it is not our Christian neighbor who believes differently than we do that's going to be the problem. Our focus should not be on fighting the person across the street who believes differently than you, calls on the name of Jesus, but not the way you do. That's not our problem. Our problem and where our focus needs to be is on those people who don't know Jesus at all. Many people who don't want to know Jesus at all. But our job, our job, church, is to share Jesus and his love until our very last breath, until we are no longer here on earth to do it. And when that time comes and you're up there looking down on what's happening, you can rest easy knowing you have done what you could. But they made the ultimate choice. We're supposed to share Jesus with compassion, with love, and with empathy. I say empathy. You look at, let's look at Islamic terrorism. Let's look at that right now. Can you have empathy for them and where they are? Could you have empathy for an Islamic terrorist who's over there as a giant locust with a tail like a scorpion stings him to death? Could you have empathy for him or would you say, you get what you paid for? That's a hard question. We're asking somebody in that case to convert to a different religion, to a different belief. Let me tell you how hard that is. A true spiritual conversion radically alters the direction of your life. Radically alters. And that can be scary. Specifically in the terms of of being a Muslim, in most Muslim countries, it's illegal to convert. It's illegal. You could be put to death for converting. Other countries, the the more moderate countries, you can convert, but you can't cause somebody to convert. So in other words, if I go over there and I share Jesus and that person converts, they haven't committed a crime, but I have. 
punishable by death. Atheists now, let's talk about them. They're more often resistant to the idea of religion than of God. Most atheists I've had contact with can't stand the church, can't stand what the church stands for. They'll talk to you about God and the possibilities, although, yeah, I don't really buy it. But what really turns them off is religion. What really turns them off is the religion, this framework that we have put on a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, is your religion, the way you practice your belief and your love for Jesus Christ, is it attractive? Is it attractive to where a non-believer, an atheist, would look at the way you live your life and this God that you've given your life to and say, I want that? I don't have an answer for that, and I'm certainly not pointing a finger because I do the same thing. But I want you to consider this. There's another question. What's harder? What is harder, for an atheist to accept Jesus or for a devout believer in something else to accept Jesus? I don't know that there's an answer for that question. You're asking a convert, okay? So we're talking about a convert versus a new believer for the terms of this conversation. A new believer is somebody that doesn't believe in anything. You're asking him to believe in Jesus. Convert, somebody who believes in something else, and you're asking him to set that aside and believe in Jesus. A convert, you're asking him to change direction, change his life, to radically alter what he's doing, to literally change direction. A new believer, you're asking him to find direction, for the first time. And I don't know that there is a right answer, but what we need to have, going back, empathy for that decision. Let's say you're a devout Muslim and you're here on earth and you're with your family in in Qatar or wherever you are and everybody around you, you've been raised as a Muslim, your whole family are Muslims, and you see these things start to unfold. And it doesn't look like what you were told it was going to look like. You've got no context for this. What is this? And there's some Christians standing there going, I told you, here it comes. This is what my God said was going to happen. Would you have any idea what would be going through your mind as a Muslim believer sitting there going, everything I've believed my entire life is wrong. And now in the midst of mountains falling and fire and brimstone and and fire-breathing locust hordes, I need to make the decision to follow Jesus Christ. Are you going to be somebody that is able to lead somebody like that to Jesus? Or are we going to have a judgmental heart that's going to make it difficult for somebody to accept him? To me, when I read this, that's what it all comes down to. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start heading up. See, in today's society, we are so often told that we have to choose a side. Choose a side. You're Republican, you're Democrat, you're red, you're blue, you're Christian, you're atheist, you're this, you're that. Our whole society seems to be geared on making you choose a side. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. People tell you 
that, oh, I don't read the Revelation. I don't even want to talk about that because that's scary. Can you tell them the reason for the hope that you have? Because my Lord and Savior is good, and my God has made a way for me to navigate this, and all I need to do is let him lead. When it's your turn for God to use you, are you going to be a reflection of his heart? In other words, is your religion going to be attractive enough to help somebody? It's not our job to bring people to Christ. Our job is to not be the problem. See, the Lord is reaching out to people all day, every day, and he is relentless. And church, he is better at it than we would ever be. But I'll tell you what, a thousand still small voices that try to work on and soften your heart over your entire life can be immediately destroyed by one judgmental Christian that says, you need to repent today or you're going to hell. We need to consider our actions and we need to stop focusing on who the enemy is and who the enemy is going to be. That's not our choice. And that's not our task here on the earth. We'll talk as we go later when I start talking about the Antichrist. I was talking to Gabe about this. Yes, I think we all should have an understanding of what the attributes of the Antichrist are like so that we can recognize these things when it begins to unfold, which hopefully just lends an urgency to our work here on earth. It's not to pick out one particular person and say, that's my enemy. The enemy we know, there's one, and it's Satan. And from him, everything else flows. Don't look at those who are afflicted. Don't look at those who are misled. Don't look at those who don't know Jesus yet. And don't look at those who have been raised to know another God and say, they're my enemy. Our enemy is Satan and everything that he would do to disrupt the plans of God. And the plans and purposes of God are that his children would be in heaven with him. That's why he sent his son. Church, I really don't have an ending for this. But as we go into communion, I just want everybody to think about, is my religion, what I call religion, the way I practice my relationship and my knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, is that attractive to people I meet? Is that something that a non-believer or a believer in something else is gonna look at me and say, that's different, I want that that's the greatest thing that we can do in the kingdom. Amen? So I think everybody knows here how we do communion at the crosses. We've got juice and bread and crackers to serve yourself. Gabe and I will be up front and we can serve you wine. Take all the time that you need just to pray through this. We have a prayer team in the back who could help you if you just need prayer for healing or for any issue that you have going on. Go see them at this time. But then just spend some time worshiping with us and just celebrating a loving Father who has always made a way. Amen. Thank you, church.
You are